All right, you guys can turn in your Bibles to Colossians. <clears throat> Clifton will be preaching out of Colossians 2, 1 to 5, but we will start our reading um, in chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. All right, before we get started, let's just pray one more time and then we'll uh, get into it. Father, thank you so much for what you've provided for us today. Uh, we have one prayer, Lord, as we get into your word in Colossians 2 which is that uh, you would be our treasure, that we wouldn't uh, look anywhere else for what we know can only be found in you. Please uh, stir our hearts to think that way and let us think that way, not just now as we look at your word, but uh, let your word be in us as we leave this place. Let us constantly um, be looking at scripture, praying to you and considering the ways that you have transformed our whole lives to be in great expectation for what is to come. And we know all of these good things, these wonderful, beautiful things, uh, are only found in you. So we thank you for that, and we worship you for that, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So raise your hand if you've ever heard of a book or a movie or a television show called Treasure Island. Raise your hand. Okay, pretty much everyone. And that's great, because I'm going to spoil it for you right now. Um, you've had 140 years to prepare for this spoiler. So if you didn't know this, joke's on you. Um, Treasure Island, as most of you guys know because you raised your hands, it's a story of a guy named Jim Hawkins. He gets a map, he gets um, a crew of people together, and they get on a ship, and they go to find buried treasure on an island. Um, as they are going there, the big kind of first spoiler happens about halfway through the story, in which you find out um, that the cook of the ship Long John Silver, uh, turns out to be a pirate. And not only is he a pirate, um, but he is actually in control secretly of basically the rest of the crew who all of them turn out to be pirates as well. 
And so they end up, whoa, no, someone didn't know the story. Um, and so they end up taking over in what's called a mutiny in Pirates. Um, and the rest of the book is basically revolving around the fact of who is going to get the treasure first, the heroes uh, or the pirates. Now, Jim Hawkins is with the heroes for a good chunk of the book. But at one point, he kind of gets captured by the pirates as the pirates are attacking the heroes in a little castle area uh, on the uh, island. And what happens is the heroes end up giving the pirates the map to find the treasure in order to uh, save their own lives. And if this doesn't sound familiar, it's probably because you grew up with an adaptation that's a little bit different from what I'm describing, which is from the book. Um, so what ends up happening is the pirates get the map, um, and so begins a very, very exciting part of the story where you have been waiting for uh, them to find the treasure. Um, so they follow all the places. There's multiple arguments. The pirates are very, very tense as they get close to the treasure. And the big spoiler happens when they find the treasure. At the height of the pirates, um, basically ready to kill each other, ready because of all the excitement they've had to find the treasure, are ready to slit each other's throats, literally. They finally dig up the treasure, open these giant, big, beautiful treasure chests, only to find nothing. What? Exactly. Money? Nothing. It turns out that absolutely nothing is in the treasure chest. Now the question I have is, have you ever had a moment like that? Not when you're literally looking for treasure, but when you have been putting a lot of effort into something and there seems to be no results. When you've been working very hard to get to a place and it has turned out that you have not received the ward, reward that you wanted. Now, in a broken world, that's something I think all of us on some level uh, understand. And we can even appreciate. And even though it's a nice thing that we can all agree with that, the problem is that it is a reflection of what it's like to be a broken person in a broken world. Which is that we are constantly searching for the wrong things the wrong treasures, and the wrong satisfactions to complete us in an ultimate sense. We are constantly looking for the wrong things to be the very purpose of our entire lives. And what's even worse is that we are so broken that the more we want things we shouldn't want, the more bad things we'll do in order to get those things. Like the pirates showing how terrible they were more and more as they got closer to the treasure. So sinners tend to act even worse and worse as the things that they want end up corrupting them and end up ruining them. Because when people want the wrong things and when they give thing, the wrong things the highest importance, the search that they were on ultimately ends up being useless. Now, the question we really have, the top-down spoiler for this entire sermon is really this. What treasure are you searching for, and what math, map, rather, math, <laughs> don't follow math, what map is ultimately worth following? That's really the spoiler, and you'll know it's the spoiler in our section of Colossians 2, 1 to 5, because it's right in the middle of the text. In this tiny little five sections, Paul explains to us the spoiler of what he's trying to explain to the Colossians in verse 3 when he says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures. Verse 2 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures. 
Now, there is a reason that Paul is now describing Christ in this way. And the reason is because he has been explaining to the Colossians the importance of Christ. And we especially saw that in verse 15 to 20 when he explained that Christ is the one who is preeminent in all creation. He is the one who is first place. And the worry that Paul has as he gets to our section today is he's finally revealing the problem that the Colossians are facing. The problem the Colossians are facing is that false teachers have been telling Christians that there are other maps out there and other methods that can lead to treasures. And the problem is that these maps are false and the treasures they lead to are also false. And we know that because they were claiming that those treasures were equal to or even better than what they could receive from Christ. And Paul finally reveals that threat to us in verse 4. In verse 4, Paul explains, I am saying this in order that no one would delude you with plausible arguments. The threat that the Colossians were facing were plausible arguments. Those are explanations or arguments that are full of lies, but they've been very well explained and they've been very skillfully delivered. False teachers were using plausible arguments in order to claim that great treasures could be found outside of Christ. They were explaining that these maps were very colorful, they were very well illustrated, they were very interesting, but they were all those things to hide the fact that they led nowhere and to nothing. The problem was this mass delusion, whether the false teachers knew they were leading nowhere or whether they had deluded themselves, the problem Paul is dealing with is people being deluded to not believe in Christ. I think Alistair Begg says it very well when he explains what the problem with this is. He said, we need to examine all teaching based upon the truthfulness of its content rather than on the attractiveness of its packaging. And the point really is that as Paul sees that threat, he is trying to explain the true truth that will take them away from being deluded, which is that Christ is supreme and sufficient. Christ is whom everything was created for, and Christ is everything that anyone needs. Now, Paul actually at this point had a lot of joy that the Colossians knew that. That's why the very last verse he says in verse 5, after explaining the threat to the Colossians, is he says this, I am rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul explains there's two good things happening at this church. They have good order and they have a firm faith. The first is good order. Al Mohler once said that order in any sense is an achievement and disorder in a fallen world is actually the natural state. Now, if that's true for order in any sense, it is 100% true to people who are in Christ. By God's grace, the Colossians were very faithful to Christ's plan, and you could see that in a sense in their church because leaders were being leaders and preachers were preaching and disciplers were discipling. People were in good order. They were doing the things that they were called to do in the fellowship of Christ. And that really was ultimately because, verse 5, they had a firmness of faith. They had a firmness of faith in Christ. They had an immovable faith. Even though they were tempted to potentially add things to Christ, they at least knew that Christ was important. They at least knew that Christ was essential. 
Maybe they might be tempted to add things, but they weren't necessarily tempted to completely lose Christ. They might be naive, but at least they had a desire to know where was healthy Christian living fundamentally centered upon, and that was Christ. Now, the question really is, if these Colossians were under threat of plausible arguments, why is Paul rejoicing? If they're doing so well, why does he still have to warn them? And really, it's because of this. Even if you are a Christian, there are still threats. To go back to the Treasure Island analogy, even though you might be on the search for treasure, there's still pirates. And you don't know where they're going to come from and when they're going to come. And they are serious threats to those who might claim or convince you that there are other or better ways out there. And the cleverest of these people are not going to tell you that Christ is absolutely nothing, but they might say that something that's not worth anything is worth something. And that's really what we're looking at in this section today. Paul is going to explain to us what Christ is doing for his people to lead them to the riches only found in Christ. Christ is explaining the map that is leading to the riches, to the treasures that are only found in Christ. He's going to explain the map to get there, and he's going to explain how God is keeping us on that map in order to receive the right treasures. If you're looking for a proposition statement, it's this, that we are going to observe three ways to remain firm in our faith in Christ so that we will not be led away from Christ. Three ways to be firm in your faith in Christ in order to not be led away from Christ. And all these three things are things that Christ is doing for us. And the very first thing that he explains, all of these are going to make up a section of verses 2 or verse 3. And the first one is found in verse 2, which is this. Christ is committed to encouraging our hearts. Christ is committed to encouraging our hearts. Now, I didn't wake up writing the sermon thinking I was going to give you Coldplay lyrics, but here we are, and I'm going to give you Coldplay lyrics. Me and Ashley were listening to a new album that they had put out, and they put out a song called Human Heart. And there was something interesting in the chorus, at least, and uh, it kind of has something to deal with the human heart. The lyrics say, I only have a human heart. I wish it didn't run away. I wish it didn't fall apart. My human heart, night and day and light and dark, any day it could be torn in half. I only have a human heart. Now, as awkward as it might have been for me to read lyrics to you, the point is this, that even Coldplay understands. A human heart means a weak heart. A human heart is not built to last. It doesn't seem to be built strong. It's fragile. It's easily changeable. It constantly needs support, and it constantly needs building up, and even the culture on some level understands that. And the Bible definitely understands that. And when the Bible talks about the human heart, it's really not just talking about not being able to control your emotions or your emotions being fragile. The biblical heart is dealing with more than just your emotions. Your heart is the center of everything. Your heart is the center of not just your emotions, but of your whole life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Your heart has the springs of life. It's not just the springs of your emotions, but your whole person. It's the starting point of your thinking and feeling and desiring and doing. Everything comes from the heart. 
And the problem that we know from Jeremiah 17, 9, is that the heart is deceitful above all things because it is desperately sick. The problem with a human heart, the reason why a human heart is weak, is because of sin. Sin destroys our stability. Sin makes us not able to trust our own hearts. Sin means that our hearts need help. We need help to be able to stay onto the path that leads us to riches. We need something outside of ourselves to help us on the inside. And the beautiful thing that Paul is actually explaining is that Christ called him to minister the gospel to the Colossians and to us because Christ cares about encouraging our hearts. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2.2 that Paul came that their hearts might be encouraged. You guys know what encouragement is. It's you feel encouraged when people come and tell you kind or comforting things or when someone's thoughtful action brings warmth to our souls. It's when a friend lives life with you like he's a family member. It's when someone reassures you or restores you or brings something bright into our darkness or improves our outlook on life. All of that is encouragement. But biblically, it means something even deeper than that. It's not just having comfort, but it's being strengthened. It's being strengthened. There are some people who actually translate Colossians 2 to saying that Paul came that their hearts might be strengthened. It's the idea of our hearts having dust upon us because of falling down so often. And when someone comes to strengthen them, they pick them up, they pick their hearts off from the ground, shake off the dust, and give them the strength to be able to continue walking on the road they're walking on. And Paul was doing this thing for the churches to encourage their hearts, which we know because he says in verse 1 that he wanted them to know how great a struggle he had for them. Paul was one of these Christ-sent encouragers. He was a person who came to encourage and comfort and strengthen both believers and the church as a whole. But Paul didn't do that by coming and saying, look, you can be like me. You can be as awesome as I can. Look how awesome I am. You can be encouraged like I'm encouraged. Paul wasn't trying to point at himself to say, be like me. But rather, he said, only be like me as I am of God. And the reason that was the case is because Paul wanted to explain to the churches that ultimately all encouragement comes from God alone. Proverbs 23, 19 says that it's only through God that our hearts can be directed on the way. God explains us the treasures we should be headed for, and he also explains how he's going to keep us on the right paths to get to those treasures. If you have your Bibles and you want to see a master class on how Christ is committed to our encouragement, go over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Feel free to turn there and I'll give you a little context while you're going there. John 13 to 16 is part of what's called the upper room discourse when Jesus is heading to the cross and he's kind of preaching his last sermon to the disciples. And they are the opposite of encouraged. They are discouraged because the disciples know that Christ is leaving them but they don't yet fully understand why he's leaving them. Christ is going to the cross to forgive all believers of their sin, but they are going to miss their friend. They are discouraged because they don't fully understand what's going to happen, and they are going to miss Christ. So, so much of what Christ is saying here is to encourage them, 
And because we have these words in the Bible for us, these are also for our encouragement. And so in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, John 14, verse 16 and 17, this is what Christ says to his disciples. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He dwells with you, and he will be in you. Now, even in those two verses alone, there is a ton of encouragement. But let me tell you two really quick things about how committed Christ is to your encouragement. Here's the first. The entire Trinity cares about your encouragement. The entire Trinity cares about your encouragement. Of course, we know Jesus Christ is committed because he's literally the person explaining this. But he also says that he's praying to the Father for their encouragement. Because Christ knows the Father also cares for their encouragement. So Christ and the Father are committed to their encouragement. But the particularly amazing insight we have here is how committed the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is this agent of encouragement. And we know that because he's literally described as the encourager. The same word that we get for the helper, that the Holy Spirit is the helper, that's literally the same word for encouragement. So the Holy Spirit, God himself, is literally being explained as the encourager, as the strengthener. And not only is the whole trinity involved in this, but they're also explaining how that works out in your life. He explains that the spirit of truth will dwell with you and will be in you forever. What he's explaining is not only will the Holy Spirit help you know the truth, but will help you believe the truth and keep you in the truth. He's going to explain how everything works and how he cares about your encouragement. And if there's anything that's going to keep you firm in the faith, it's that. That the whole trinity has revealed to you a plan that would keep you strong and comforted in the Lord. And that kind of commitment can help our hearts be firm in the faith and not be taken away from plausible arguments. Because God is eternally in us and with us and supernaturally reminding us of the truth. That is why Christ says in John 16, 1, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Even in the process of being sinners, we so constantly think that if we sin, God's mad at us. Or if we sin, God's not proud of us. But the reality is that the constant thing on God's mind is to keep you in the faith, is to keep you steadfast and immovable in the faith. And we continue to see that, actually, as we even go to the second thing, the second thing that Christ is committed to for his people, which is this. Christ is committed to uniting us in love. Christ is committed to uniting us in love. I heard a popular saying from my old church, which was this. A lone ranger is a dead ranger. The other way that some people say it this way is a lone wolf is a dead wolf. I think you understand the context of that. It means if you don't have a community, you are not going to get very far. Especially as a result of COVID, I think all of us realize that loneliness and uh, isolation is so unideal for people. Statistics have actually shown this year alone there's been a massive rise in domestic violence and self-abuse. And in so many parts of LA, I know firsthand that People were so desperate that police were actually begging churches to open because there's something about the church 
that even the world, when it comes down to it, recognizes is a community totally unlike any other. And that is part of the reason Paul was so committed to the building up of churches, because God's people need each other. If you look at all the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, only one is written to an individual. The rest of his letters are all written to churches, to the collective body of Christ, because he struggled to tell them something fundamentally important, which is they needed to be knit together. He explains in verse 2 that he came that their hearts may be encouraged and that they would be knit together in love. And that idea of being knit together isn't just talking about unity. It's talking about radical unity. It's really the best verb that we have that brings to life this metaphor of the church being the body of Christ. When Christians come together as the body of Christ, they don't act as one person. They are so united in purpose and goal that many people become one person, one body. That is how close people in Christ are to be. Paul actually explained in Romans 15, 6, when he said, Together with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are one body, you sing as one voice. Now, just because we looked in the last verse and see how committed God is to encouraging our hearts, just because we have strength as individual believers, we're never supposed to be so content in our isolation that we disassociate ourselves from the rest of the body. I saw an interesting video this week of a lion being attacked by 20 hyenas. And it's interesting because the lion actually survives by itself for quite a long time. A lion is obviously incredibly powerful, and hyenas need about 20 of them to put up a fight against this lion. But you notice that the lion starts backing down after only about 10 or 15 minutes. And that lion would be totally erect by itself if his buddy lion didn't actually show up. And interesting enough, as soon as one other lion showed up, the hyenas took one look at that lion and they bailed immediately. And there's something about that that's very similar with the Christian community. Just like two lions can fend off attacks from 20 hyenas, the true church of Christ is able to resist the threats of innumerable attacks so long as we are together. This is actually so important to Christ that he didn't explain it only as a command. He also explained it as a promise. This isn't just something we do. This is something Christ has given, Christ has done for us. It was so important to Christ that it's actually what was on his mind before his crucifixion. As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 17, he prays to the Father in verse 21 saying this, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity isn't just important to protect us from threats outside the church. Unity also reveals what God has done for us inside the church, that God is so committed to our unity that he desires us to be as close together as the Trinity is together. Just as the Trinity is three persons in one essence, so the body of Christ are many people in one body, in Christ's body. And the only way that is possible can't be from our effort. 
It has to be if God himself fuels the church with his supernatural love. The key to the kind of radical unity that we need is from Christ's love. And so Christ prayed for this in John 17, 23. He says, I pray that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The greatest display of love that this universe has ever seen was when Christ went to the cross. And the power and perfection of that love has been glimpsed in Christ's body, the church. That same love unites us together, fuels our attitude towards each other, and helps us love each other. And when we love each other, we grow closer together, and we grow closer to Christ. And we are stronger against the threats that the enemy has for us. One pastor said it this way, which was very fascinating. He said, the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from cultivating brotherly love in the community. You won't understand fully the love of Christ unless you are in the body of Christ. Now let me clarify something so that it's not lost on you as you continue your life in the church. The church is not perfect, and the people in the church are not perfect. I think for those of you who are with us on Sunday mornings, you know this, that we are loving, messy people. The church is a messy place. People come with problems, and they come broken. But when you come to learn how hard it is to love someone, you will understand how amazing it is that Christ loves us, and how amazing it would be if we can love each other at all. And you won't be able to see the radical nature of that love between imperfect people unless you are committed to staying in a Christ-centered, Christ-honoring community. And if you are there, you aren't going to miss the beautiful things that God is doing by transforming his people to be like himself. In the church, selfish people slowly become selfless servants People who are conditional in all of their friendships suddenly start to love people unconditionally. People who refuse to learn slowly begin to grow in humility and maturity, and they start to invite other people into that same process. And history has proved that no matter how convincing a plausible argument might be, it cannot create lasting unity. Only the church is the institution that God has proved throughout the entire history from Christ's death and resurrection all the way to now, that will still be standing. And it will still be standing when he comes. And therefore, don't ever, ever look for a kind of love that Christ can give you in the church. There is no community out there that will be able to love you like people who've experienced the love of Christ can love you. Don't go into high school thinking that you could find relationships that will complete you ultimately. Don't go to college thinking that it's unimportant to go to church. The what that you need the most is to understand what love actually is and to have a taste of it in the church until Christ gives us the full banquet of it when he returns again or when we die and see him face to face. 
These are the things that Paul struggled for. He struggled for the encouragement of our hearts, and he struggled to unite us together in love. But the main reason he came was to explain the person who could promise these things, the person who would reveal himself as the treasures that are hidden from the rest of the world, yet revealed to his saints in the church. And so the last way that we can see how Christ is committed to us and committed to the firmness of our faith is number three, that Christ is committed to reminding us of his treasures. Christ is committed to reminding us of his treasures. As I was looking up information this week on Treasure Island, I had no idea that there were so many adaptations of Treasure Island. Even as many of you have raised your hand, my guess is that maybe none of you, but definitely not most of you, actually read the entire Treasure Island book. It's because so many television shows and so many movies have adapted this story because it's amazing. It seems to be very interesting. Muppet Treasure Island being the best one. But it doesn't matter. The question is, why are treasure hunts in and of themselves so interesting? Obviously, there's something adventurous about it, and obviously having a payoff at the end of the adventure, and this treasure seems to be very exciting. But I think there might be another reason, is because a discovery is exciting. There is something exciting about receiving something that you had no idea was so valuable. It's fun to see how surprising and amazing discovery by itself can be. I read a story this week of a guy named Eric Laws. Eric Laws in the 1990s was retired and living in England. And one day he got a friend uh, to call him who was a farmer. And he asked him if he could use his metal detector to try and find a hammer he lost in his field. Now, Eric Laws uh, had a metal detector. It was his retirement gift, and it was his greatest hobby. He loved looking for things. So his friend, knowing this, said, hey, I got a hammer in my field. Come and find this hammer for me. And Eric said, I'd love to do that. So spending a couple hours, he started digging up random things. He hadn't found the hammer, but he was finding other interesting things. And at one point, his metal detector went off particularly sharply, and so he went over to that spot, and as he began to dig, he started pulling up not only handfuls of dirt, but handfuls of old-looking coins and silver spoons and eventually small statues and eventually larger figurines and then other artifacts. Knowing that he had obviously found something interesting, he called the police and he called the local archaeological society. And both of them came very quickly and they also came very quietly because they didn't want too much media attention that might interfere with a very exciting dig. And it was a very exciting dig. It actually ended up being the largest and most valuable archeological find in the history of Britain. And two people got a pretty amazing reward out of it. The first was obviously Eric Laws who found it. And he was given $2.3 million. He woke up as a retired man walking around in a field looking for a hammer and walked away with $2.3 million. But the archaeological society themselves actually said they thought they had the better reward. And that better reward was that they got to know a whole history of how Britain as a country was formed because of the things that they found in the ground. They actually could trace those coins all the way back to around 400 AD when Rome was still in control of Britain. And as a result of that, 
Even 30 years later, they are still discovering more and more things about the history of Europe. So here's the question. Who received the greater reward? Who received the greater reward? Now, I'll be honest. I'm almost about 100% sure most of you would say the $2.3 million. And here's the thing. I would too. $2.3 million is amazing. $2.3 is not amazing, let me just clarify. $2.3 million is amazing. And I think that amount of money would be way better than learning history, which is the other side. Here is the problem with that. I think Christians treat heaven like the $2.3 million. We see Christ as a treasure because he gives us heaven. That is our $2.3 million. And once we receive Christ and we receive heaven, we're done. We've gotten what we came for. The rest of our life can be lived however we want because that internal investment is laid up in heaven and there is nothing left in Christ. Ultimately, we think viewing heaven is the greatest reward. The beauty of studying the Bible is that it helps us understand heaven isn't the greatest treasure. The greatest treasure is a both and. Heaven is an amazing treasure. And there's no one out there who would say it isn't. But heaven is only amazing because of who we are with in heaven. The reason heaven is amazing is because Christ is there and because in Christ are all the treasures. What Paul explains in verse 2 is part of what he struggled for was that the Colossians would reach all the riches. And he wants to explain that all the riches are found in Christ. And he explains that by saying in verse 2 too that we reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding. Very simply put, imagine this map as if the Bible was a map leading us to Christ. What the full assurance of understanding is, is that there is absolutely no way that this map is false. You have full assurance that this will lead you to Christ and that Christ is infinitely more than you can imagine he would be. That is the full assurance of understanding that you have in front of you. And part of the reason you know that is the second thing that he says. Because Christ is the knowledge of God's mystery. Something has been hidden from us, as we learned a couple weeks ago, that there is a beautiful work of redemption being done to give us the ultimate treasure. The ultimate treasure is a restored relationship with God. Our sin is the curse that has removed us from God, and God is doing something somehow, some way, to restore that relationship. And the way that he revealed he did that was in Christ. Not only through him, but leading us to him. That he would give us a restored relationship. That we will walk with Christ for eternity. That's why Christ is not just like the $2.3 million. Christ is not just like a one-time reward. He is also beautiful as a reward just like the archaeological society discovered, because he is eternal discovery. 
Christ is eternal discovery. The beauties of heaven will be, we will see the infinite and unfathomable depths of the goodness of God more and more every day in heaven. That every day we walk with Christ, we will have a renewed sense of love for Christ. And every day that we don't think it could be any better with Christ, it's better the next day. That is the beauty of a restored relationship with Christ. That's what we don't want. Sinners don't want that. We want the immediate gratification of riches that we can have in this world. But Christ came to encourage us and unite us to remind us that he is so much better than that. That he wouldn't just take us out of the world, but he would come into our very hearts and he would transform our hearts to recognize that he is the treasure so much better. Part of the reason we know this is because of the words that he has explained to us, the truth that the spirit of Christ, the encourager, the strengthener, has made us believe in our hearts. When Christ spoke them in the world, sinners did not want to hear them. The Jewish people, especially in the Gospels, wanted to crucify Christ and get rid of Christ because they wanted a kingdom that they could rule. But he did something greater in the hearts of the disciples. So when all of the disciples, except for the original 12, left Christ, Christ turned to the 12 and asked, will you leave me also? And Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The truth of the words of Christ revealed that all of the beautiful words of this world, if they are true, will ultimately lead to Christ. And that is why verse 3 explains that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We don't have time to go deeply into both of these aspects, but I can give you just a couple pointers on each. In terms of wisdom, wisdom was the ultimate treasure of the Old Testament. If you asked any Old Testament Jewish person, what is the greatest thing I can receive in this world, they would say wisdom. Job himself in verse 28 said, where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Humans did not invent wisdom. It is completely divine, and therefore, we don't want it. And even if we wanted it, we wouldn't know where to find it. That's why King Solomon wrote an entire book on it. Because the depths of the beauty of wisdom were so great, he wanted every believer to know it. He wrote in Proverbs 3, 13, 15, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and better profit than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold fast to her are called blessed. So if wisdom is that great, and we don't want it, how can we find it? What Paul explained in his epistles, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, is this. That Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says Christ is the wisdom of God. Any word of knowledge worth applying in your life, if it is true, if it is good, 
if it is beautiful, leads to Christ. It will put you on a path that is promised to lead to Christ. And the details of the plan he has also given us because he's also hidden in himself not only wisdom, but knowledge. Christ has all knowledge. Just as Christ is going to be first place in everything, any detail of knowledge, anything that is true, will ultimately talk about Christ, describe Christ, reveal Christ, or eventually lead to Christ. Every piece, every pattern of this universe ultimately comes down to the one who created it and the knowledge of the truth he has given to us. John 15, 26, Christ says, when the helper comes, the spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me. The ultimate instrument of our faith is the words of knowledge that point to Christ. Because he doesn't just have knowledge, but he is knowledge. Anything worthy of being known comes from him. That's why the truth that he has given us in the church has comes with it a responsibility. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says that the eternal purpose of God was realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a huge statement that Christ is going to reveal wisdom through the church. And it's not because we are amazing, it's because it happened in Christ. If we have been given Christ, we've been given everything we need to fulfill our responsibilities with joy and be firm in the faith. That's why Paul ends that section of Ephesians 3 by saying, in Christ, we have boldness and access to him with confidence through our faith in him. So this is the last thing that I'll say about the treasure of Christ. We can so often think that as we look at our faith, our confidence comes with the fact that we have faith. Faith is a beautiful thing. Faith is this thing that connects us to God. It's not just knowing the truth, knowing wisdom, but it's believing knowledge and believing wisdom, therefore believing in Christ. But the strength of our faith is not what makes us saved. The fact that you are faith doesn't make you saved. What makes you saved is the person your faith points you towards. It is not your faith, but the object of your faith, the person you are looking at. The promise of the New Testament is that you study the Old Testament leading to the New Testament. You understand the words. You learn patiently how much better Christ is that we can imagine. And you remind yourself that as feeble as I am and as broken as I am, God has promised and is committed to bringing me all of the treasures found only in him. The beautiful thing that we have in the rest of Colossians as we start after Christmas is that Paul is going to explain more and more what is found in Christ and how because Christ is committed to his church and committed to revealing treasures only found in him, he's going to explain how that happens. And all of that we're going to start covering uh, after Christmas in the new year. Let's pray. Father, you are good and do good. And the greatest good you have done for us is through a relationship you have granted us by your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us remember that we are weak, we are frail, and you know that, you recognize that, you remind us of that. Not to push us down, 
but rather to reveal to us that you love us and you care for us. We were not designed to be complete in and of ourselves. We were designed to find full enjoyment, fullness in everything, only if we are in you. So restore us to you. Help us speak your truth. Help us rely on your strength and continue to point us to your salvation. We need you. We need to love you. We know you are committed to helping us love you more. And we are thankful that we know that is the great expectation we have walking into eternity, that we will eternally discover more and more of you forever. Thank you for this time, Lord, and I pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys again for listening. Just a, a really quick uh, update. So we finished chapter one of Colossians. So we're, yeah, we're getting there. So that's cool. One thing I would encourage you guys to do um, in small groups is to take like just a couple minutes, like five minutes or so, and try and see if you can rehearse what Colossians 1 has been about. It kind of goes right down to where we're at, Colossians 2, 5, because you can see in most of your Bibles, that's like a, a nugget in and of itself. It's its own section. So see if you can rehearse, like, what are some of the big truths we've learned so far? What the various sections are, or if you could have a summary verse or paragraph for Colossians 1, kind of dipping into verse 2 there. That's the first thing. Second thing is next week is our last uh, Roots meeting. Uh, we're not going to uh, have preaching. We're going to have a party, and we're not going to be here. We're going to be at the Danilo's house. So yay, Danilo's. So we're going to go there if you need a ride or if you have a problem getting there, which means you need a ride, um, then talk to one of us so we can help you get there. Um, we're going to be going around looking at some Christmas lights. We're going to hang out. Um, I'll have a very quick Devo. So if you have friends to come, um, we are going to tell them about Jesus Christ. So bring them because we can yay because then we can tell them that.